John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, reading down to verse 11. And as we read, we do, of course, remember that this is God's Word to us. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that, he had, turned, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. First of all, can I say it's uh, great to be with you uh, here in Hill Street. Thank you to Stephen and Peter for your welcome, and thank you to Nigel in his absence for the invitation uh, to, to join uh, with you today. I suppose there's a slight danger when, um, when congregations swap ministers. Uh, maybe they think, oh, maybe we'd like to keep that one. I'm sure that won't be the case today. Um, but it's great to be with you. I do have some credentials. I was officially a Presbyterian for about 18 months. Uh, in, my, uh, in my youth, uh, I, went, I studied at Stranmillis for four years and uh, during that time, spending most of those four years up around Belfast, uh, I worshipped at quite a large uh, Presbyterian church. I have to say, there was a girl involved, uh, so that's probably what took me there. And probably after about 18 months, when the girl was no longer involved, let's just put it that way, let's be diplomatic about it, um, I went back to uh, a Church of Ireland parish. Now, depending which way you look at that, I either walked down a very dark path or I saw the light, so I'll leave it for you to decide. But uh, it's great to be with you today, and we want to, to take a few minutes uh, today to really uh, go to a very familiar passage. There's probably very few of us, if any of us in church today, uh, who aren't familiar with this uh, story early on in John's Gospel, where Jesus does something that, as far as we're aware, nobody else had ever done or has done since, uh, turned ordinary water into amazing wine. The past week has been one of those weeks in Northern Ireland where we uh, kind of obsess more than usual about the weather. Uh, I don't know, uh, in some of your houses, uh, if there was kind of keen watching of the, the BBC website or, or uh, the news bulletins uh, over uh, Tuesday and Wednesday to discover whether school was open or not. 
Um, when my daughter went to bed, she's still for this year at school in Belfast, God willing, um, she'll transfer to the college in September. But uh, after she went to bed on Tuesday night, I was detailed with keeping an eye on the BBC website, and uh, she actually was off on Wednesday because uh, at, at the time that they would leave, the roads were particularly bad. But uh, we were watching the um, BBC News at lunchtime, and of course, the uh, news line were reporting on the weather and how awful it was and what chaos it had caused. And uh, they did a little feature on the schools that had closed. Uh, so we, wa- we were watching that, and then all of a sudden it said, and now we go to uh, Bloomfield Collegiate in East Belfast, which has remained open. So, of course, Lydia's uh, eye, her ears pricked up at that because that's her school at the moment. And her principal uh, was interviewed as to why uh, he made the decision to keep the school open. And I said to her afterwards, I was just waiting for him to stare at the camera and say, Lydia Harvey, where are you today? But we rely, of course, in times like that on the weather forecast and weather apps and all of that uh, to give us a sign of, of what's, what's to come. And we got fair warning, didn't we, of, of the weather that uh, we experienced. We weren't too bad, I suppose, around here uh, in Lurgan, other parts of the province and indeed other parts of the UK were very badly affected by the snow. We weren't too bad. The signs showed us what is to come. Uh, just a, an evening or two ago, I was uh, driving out to visit a family to arrange a funeral, um, and they, they live way out the Guildford Road uh, in a road off that, a road I hadn't been down as yet since I came to Shankill, the Crow Hill Road, I'm sure some of you know it, and um, maybe some of you live there, I don't know. Um, but I was really grateful for that little, uh, very polite lady that lives in the dashboard of my car. Uh, who was able to give me directions, uh, Miss Sat Nav, um, and she took me right to the gate uh, of the house that I was going to. And it's quite a very uh, current way of, of getting directions, and signposts, in a sense, have been supplanted by, by Sat Navs for those of us uh, who drive. We turn to John chapter 2, uh, this gospel written by uh, John, one of tw- Jesus' twelve closest disciples, indeed in John 19, the disciple who self-identified as the one who Jesus loved. The gospel was written between AD 70 and 100, towards the end of John's life. Now, unlike the other three gospels, which are very factual, commentators over the centuries have referred to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. They give us a synopsis of Jesus' life. John is a little bit different John is perhaps more symbolic, more pictorial. It's sometimes been referred to as the spiritual gospel. And it was a a gospel that was written very much to the world of John's day. He was writing to Gentiles, those non-Jews, those people outside of the faith in a sense. And I'm sure like us in Shankill or in, in most churches at Christmas, we're very familiar with that passage from John chapter 1, John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, known as His prologue. Now, I don't know if you've ever scratched your head and wondered, what does that mean? What does it mean when John says, in the beginning was the Word? Well, in the world of his day, and particularly to, to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to people like Greeks and people who were well into their philosophy, they would, have been, they would have recognized that straight away. 
that Jesus, the God who took human flesh, the Word, that spoke very directly into the Gentile view of the world. But of course, John was also writing and speaking to Jews, to people of the historic faith. And when he identified Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, again, he was speaking directly to their understanding of faith and of life. And so, for the whole of John's gospel to, to Jews and Gentiles, and to us here some 2,000 years later, the message is equally clear. Believe in Jesus, and you will have eternal life. The turning of water into wine at this wedding in Cana of Galilee is the first of what commentators have come to describe as the first of the seven signs in John's gospel. There are seven, seven um, what we would call miraculous events that take place in the ministry of Jesus through the first half of John's gospel, up to the end of chapter 12. And they're signs in the sense that they each point to some, to some degree or another to who Jesus is. They reveal, they, they reveal something about Him. They tell us something about who He is. Now, if we went back a little bit to the sort of second half of John chapter 1, we would be uh, putting ourselves, in a sense, into the first week of the public ministry of Jesus. During those six or seven days, Jesus uh, calls some of His early disciples. Uh, they identify Him as the Lamb of God, and Jesus uh, begins to open their eyes to what it is He has come to do. And at the point where, where John begins his account of this first miracle, it's reckoned to be the first day of the week. So, in, in our kind of parlance, that would be today, Sunday. The, the Jewish Sabbath, of course, is a Saturday. So, for them, this would have been the first day of the week. Now, the wedding feast would have been very different to any wedding that you and I go to. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, I've noticed in recent times, both going to family weddings and also uh, conducting weddings from time to time, there seems to be a, a trend developing where it's usually family and close friends of the bride and groom, but they tend to, to book into the reception hotel, and hotels, of course, are now starting to offer that into the package. Um, that's happened on a number of occasions uh, at weddings we've been to recently. So, a wedding can kind of last now sort of a full 24 hours nearly. Uh, there's, the, there's the service and the reception uh, the evening party, and then people stay over, and maybe they join the bride and groom join everybody for breakfast the next morning. But it still wouldn't have held, or still wouldn't hold a candle to the kind of wedding feast described in John chapter two. I remember uh, back in my last parish in Dundonald, we had a, a girl who, who joined our congregation. She moved into the community. She's originally from India. And about two years ago, Shirley went home for a month for her sister's wedding. And I remember chatting to her before she left around Christmas time. And uh, I said, 
so is this going to be a big affair, Shirley? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders a wee bit. And I said, well, how many people would, would your mum and dad be inviting to the wedding? And she said, about a thousand. I thought, right, well, I'm glad I wouldn't have that bill. So literally the whole community, they lived a, live in a suburb of Chennai, and literally the whole community, their friends and neighbors and their extended family, everybody's invited. We were invited if we'd have wanted to spend the money to travel all that way. But loads and loads of people are invited. And I said to her, um, how long will the wedding last, Shirley? And she said, well, the, 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 you know, the, the whole celebration will probably take about four days. So very similar um, scenario to what we have here in John chapter 2. This wedding that Jesus and His disciples went to in Cana, the whole village community would have been invited. And never mind three or four days, the festivities at this particular wedding probably lasted up to a week. Now, the fact, it's easy to overlook, but the fact that Jesus' mother Mary was there um, suggests that perhaps the bridegroom or the bride may have been part of the extended family, not necessarily blood relations, but part of the extended kind of family community in the village. The disciples who came with Jesus would now have been regarded, because they spent all their time with Him, they would now have been regarded as part of that extended family. You know the way, maybe not so much nowadays, but in years gone by, people would have gathered in you know, people's homes, and family would have come along, but loads of other people, friends and neighbors just gathered, and that's what it would have been like. <clears throat> so we don't find out an awful lot more about the, the, the wedding festivities, but John homes in on one fact. The wine runs out. Now, this was a huge social faux pas, and it was a real embarrassment. It wasn't just for the master of the feast, who would have been like the MC at the wedding reception, but ultimately it was the bridegroom's responsibility because he hosted the whole occasion, and it was really embarrassing for him and his family. So, Mary instinctively brings the problem to Jesus. His reaction is very revealing, because I think it shows us that something has changed in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, and something has changed in His relationship with those around Him. Someone puts it this way, Mary approaches Jesus as His mother and is reproached. She responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. We read in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, he said, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And then she says, she doesn't react to that. She just looks at the, the servants gathered around. She says, do whatever He tells you. Do whatever He tells you. It's a response of faith. And Jesus seems to respond to that, and He steps in and rescues the situation. The wine is miraculously replenished, not just with the, the kind of um, bargain basement stuff that maybe um, had been uh, there at the very end, but miraculously replenished with the best quality. And of course, the bridegroom's honor is restored. 
It's a sign because it teaches us something about Jesus. So the question is, what does it teach us? And how does it challenge us? We can allow it to teach us something and then walk out as if we've never heard anything. So we need to allow the Word of God to teach us by the Spirit of God and then allow that same Spirit to challenge us to apply this Word to our lives. So let me suggest a couple of ways in which this Word teaches us and challenges us. Firstly, it tells us that Jesus takes what's ordinary and He makes it extraordinary. Jesus takes what's ordinary and He makes it extraordinary. Jesus responds to a very real need, and yet His response seems strange, to say the least. He said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and we're told that they filled them to the brim. Now, the water would have been drawn from the nearest well. It would have been fresh and clean water, and the 20-gallon jars were designed in such a way that they would have prevented any contamination. So, it was lovely, clear, pure water, but it was still water. Now, it's interesting. I find it interesting. I've always found it interesting that Jesus doesn't perform any kind of physical act. He doesn't go over to these jars of water, put His hands on them, and say, water, become wine. His creative Word was all that was needed. What do I mean by that? We go back to John chapter 1, to that prologue that I mentioned earlier. In verse 3, we read this, through the Word through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And that included the water drawn from this particular well. He made it. And the water drawn from the well and poured into those particular jars. At His Word, this fresh spring water becomes wine, and not just any wine but as the master of the feast tells us, the best wine. So, Jesus can take what's ordinary, and He can make it extraordinary. Second thing is this, that Jesus can take our everyday kind of and sometimes dry religion, and He transforms it into living relationship. He transforms religion into living relationship. Now, it's really easy for you and I, because we live in the 21st century, we don't have ceremonial stone jars. It's very easy for us to miss the significance. These would normally have held the water that would have been used for what the Jews called ceremonial washing. Now, that was something that was part of Jewish law. It was something that was part of Jewish religious practice, and it would have been a ritual that they performed very, very regularly. And it's interesting because when you think about it, these jars have a, have a central place in the story, and their place points to a reality. And it's the reality is this, that Jesus came, one, to fulfill the requirements of God's law, which human, no human could do, but then to take that and to transform it, that dry religious ritual, into a living relationship. 
Now, let's be honest, folks. We can all get caught up in dry religious ritual. It's not that just the churches that have liturgies, liturgies printed in their prayer books like we do. We can all do it. We can all get familiar. We can all come in and we go through the same thing week after week. And it just really becomes and gets settled in our lives as a fairly dry religious observance. But Jesus points us to something much deeper here. You see, the old has gone, the new has come. And that's a promise that God consistently made through the Old Testament that what was dry religious observance, often by people with hard hearts, would become something new, and their hearts would be transformed. So, that new day for God's people in Jesus becomes reality, and of course, it does for us too where what we do, no matter what our expression of worship is, no matter what team, uh, as Stephen reminded uh, us earlier, what, no matter what team we're part of, Jesus, by His presence in our lives, transforms us, and transforms our religion into living relationship. And the third thing is this, Jesus can take the emptiness in your life or my life or anyone's life for that matter, the emptiness in our communities and our society, and He replaces it with His fullness. The wine has run out. The bottles and the vats are empty. There is nothing more to give. In this context, it's a disaster. Now, some of us, in a funny kind of way, know what that's like. Not the run out of wine at a party, because, you know, if it's Christmas, whatever it is, you know, I don't know if you were in Tesco's or any of the other supermarkets before Christmas, I'm sure many of you were. I was sent down uh, one day, just a few days before Christmas, in an emergency, something, Joanne had forgotten to get something, go down to get it. She was starting to do the preparations for Christmas Day. And of course, the trolleys were, there's the trolley, and the trolleys were stacked up high. We're very it's very unlikely that we're going to forget anything these days, or we're going to run out of anything. In fact, the truth is we have a surplus, don't we? But in this context, it's a disaster. And we do know what that's like, not in a physical sense, not in running out of whatever it might be at the party or celebration, but we know what it's like to be empty and to have run dry. We may not always admit it, we, we may not even tell another soul, but we do know what it's like to be empty, sometimes spiritually, to be empty emotionally, or whatever form that emptiness might take. One of my favorite hymns for many, many years has been that beautiful hymn, Be Still My Soul. And there have been a few occasions over the years when I literally haven't been able to sing some of the words, because I've been really overcome by their power and their depth, and by what they remind me about the Lord and His grace. The last few lines of the third verse particularly, be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay from His own fullness all He takes away. You see, out of His fullness, He can replenish our emptiness. 
few years back, Matt Redman wrote a beautiful song uh, called When My Heart Runs Dry, based on some words from Revelation 2 where uh, John is writing to uh, the vision that Jesus gives him uh, to the church in Ephesus. It says this, when my heart runs dry and there's no song to sing, no holy melody, no words of love to bring, I recall the height from which this fragile heart has slipped, and I remember you. I turn back and do the things I used to do. Out of His fullness, Jesus can replenish our emptiness. So, how might we respond to what God's saying? This morning, as you and I look at our lives and maybe the the ordinariness of our circumstances, maybe the dryness of our faith or the emptiness of our hearts, or maybe we're thinking of another person just at this moment that in some way that describes, how might we respond to what the Lord is saying to us? Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, recognize who Jesus is. Read the sign. It's plain from this story. He reveals His glory through this miracle. He is God and he is able. So, we sometimes sing, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He's like no other. Recognize who He is. Read the sign. The second thing is, do what His disciples did when they saw what He did. What does it say in verse 11? What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and John says, His disciples believed in Him. Do what they did. Take a step of faith this morning. Maybe for some of us that might be a first-time step of faith to trust Christ for the very, very first time, or for some of us it's because there's a a situation maybe in our lives, our circumstances, our families, or a situation in somebody else's life that we know, and we know that God is calling us to take a step of faith. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Put your hand in His. Take a step into the dark, but know that He's there. And third and finally, listen to the words of Mary, His mother. Who'd have thought a Church of Ireland minister would stand up at Presbyterian Church and say, listen to Mary. But listen to what she says. Do whatever He tells you. Sometimes it's so simple. When, when the Lord speaks to us through His Word, when the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear and in our hearts the truth of God's Word, sometimes it's so simple we kind of miss it. Do whatever He tells you. Whatever the Lord has been whispering to you over the time I've been speaking, and I hope you sense God saying something, do it. Respond to it. Believe it. Trust it. And can I encourage you? Do it today. See, Jesus waits, ready to make our ordinary extraordinary. 
He waits to transform our dry religion into that living relationship. And He waits for you and I to come to Him and to replace our emptiness with the fullness that only He can give us. Can we pray together? Let's just take a short moment of quiet just to reflect on what the Lord has been saying to us. And in the quietness of our own hearts, to make the response that's appropriate for us. And Lord, my prayer is very simple this, this afternoon, that You would take the seed of Your Word, that You would sow it deep into our hearts, Lord, that our hearts would be found to be good ground, and that the seed of Your Word would bring much fruit for Your glory. Amen.